Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest in the RIBAJ Talks podcast series, today sponsored by West Fraser. I'm Jan Carlos Koharik, Deputy Editor of the RIBA Journal, and this is in a way a one-off edition of our podcasts, given that it makes up for what was originally going to be a conducted as a live event celebrating the winners of this year's Sterling OSB Zero, the retreat competition. This was cancelled as a result of the death of the Queen. But given Sterling OSB Zero's aims to be a wholly sustainable business, the theme of that discussion at the event was to cover sustainability issues in the construction sector. To do that today, we have invited two of the winners of this year's Sterling OSB competition, along with representatives of both a global architecture design firm and a grassroots architects activist network to try and address these issues. The participants today uh, are firstly, Phil Obida, Principal at SOM. So if you'd like to introduce yourself, Phil. Thanks for inviting me. Um, I'm Phil Obeda, Principal at the uh, SOM's London office. I lead the technical design group um, here in London. Also, I I sit on the RIBA's um, board committee for practice and policy and part of the the housing expert advisory group. And we work together with Letty on low carbon specification. Thank you very much, Phil. Uh, Our second guest is Rosie Murphy. Now, you're Diversity and Solidarity Coordinator with the Architects Climate Action Network, aren't you? Yes. Hello. Thanks very much for having me. So absolutely, I am the Diversity and Solidarity Coordinator within the Architects Climate Action Network. I'm also one of the co-coordinators of the education group within that same organisation. I'm an advocate for the Black Females in Architecture Network and a mentor for Homegrown Plus. Um, My part-time paid work is with a wonderful social enterprise called Matt Fiona, um, where we do wonderful co-design projects with children and young people, empowering them um, to have a say in the built environment that they occupy. Thank you very much indeed, Rosie. Welcome. Uh, Our next guest is Rob Annable, who was a winner of, or one of the commended winners of this year's Sterling OSB retreat competition. Rob, introduce yourself. Thanks, Carlos. Uh, my name is Rob Annable from Access Design Architects. We're a practice based in the West Midlands, and we have specialism and experience in the housing sector predominantly, but increasingly now working with small-scale community centre projects. And um, I also am a visiting tutor at the Birmingham School of Architecture, working across the undergraduate course and also the Design for Future Living course there. Thank you very much. Lovely uh, commended entry, by the way. We actually love the way that you, you allowed the materials to perish beautifully. Uh, divisive as it was with the judges. Um, and Elliot Nash, uh, you are also a commended winner uh, with your lovely project, which is also slightly divisive in as much as um, you were using Sterling OSB in order to kind of, uh, uh, to as shuttering for, the, for, for concrete and then kind of reusing it. But a beautiful project and beautifully resolved. Um, please introduce yourself. Hi there, it's great to be here. Um, I am Elliot. Uh, I My entry was made with uh, Tom Birch, who's a friend and colleague at Right and Right Architects, um, where I'm a part two. Um, I wear a couple of other hats. I lead the Accelerate course at Open City, which is for 16 to 18 year olds looking to get into the world of the built environment and hoping to diversify the uh, profession. And I also teach at the University of Greenwich. I teach first year students there. And you're, uh, well, yeah, and you're forgetting Whitehall, casting Blackhall, repurposed monuments to create a new podium as a debating chamber of process. That also got awarded the Architectural Review's Future Project Student Prize. Congratulations. Thank you. Thanks for bigging that up. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. No, it looked lovely. I just looked at it on the, the, the Architectural Review before you came. Um, looked like a great project. Welcome, everybody. Thank you very much for coming this afternoon. The question that we were going to ask at the... Uh, the original live event, um, obviously people were going to get their prizes, etc. But generally, we'd have a little discussion afterwards. And the question that we wanted to pose, really, the broader question was, how does the profession retain net zero and the climate emergency as its main priorities? Because given firms, large and small, are faced with generational pressures from the economy, such as winning work and managing talent, and given the lack of government proactivity, the profession should remain focused on the long-term goal of achieving net zero by 2030. I suppose what we want to ask is, is this realistic? And does the current energy crisis, in fact, incentivise this ambition? 
Now, Phil, you've been, I suppose we just start with you, Lee, because I think you're probably dealing at the kind of the larger, you know, the kind of the cog base really of kind of like mass housing and complex kind of infrastructure project delivery. So in view of that, when you kind of get, for instance, you know, a blank sheet really on a vacant site, which you've then got to fill with housing or mixed-use development, do you think it's easy to convince clients of the relevance of low-embodied carbon or low-operational carbon approaches? And how far do you think clients are prepared to go beyond minimum requirements to kind of become involved in the bigger thinking around landmark low-carbon projects? We're fortunate in that we do get to work across different sectors, across different regions. And I think what's clear is that different um, different countries will have different roadmaps of how they want to get to, to net zero. And there are a wide variety of solutions of how you get there and also a wide variety of lessons learned. And sometimes you have to cross those lessons learned to other markets and educate clients and educate them that uh, it's, it's no longer a choice, it is a necessity. And some are quicker to understand that. Some need to be um, taken on that journey. And what we've tried to do is set a, a global standard of our own irrespective of the market, of where we think buildings need to be for each typology in terms of operational energy, embodied carbon, whole life carbon, and set them irrespective of the market we're working in and say that if we can do this in one region, why can't we do it in another? And work with the client to see what's the best solution to get there. So in some regions where we work in in the west coast of the US, timber isn't seen as a sustainable material. It's the, the natural, most economic material. And if we can show that there's a, an economic solution to use timber in these projects, why can't we find a way to use timber in others? In other cases, we'll look at uh, where we can deploy more renewable means of generation, a generation of energy, whether it's, it's from ground source, river cooling, and, and look to see that these can be applied more universally. So it's really about trying to understand that's, that there's a range of ways to get there. And irrespective of what the targets are, in any one local policy, um, there should be a more universal target of how we get buildings to to become much more sustainable and, and much more appropriate to the long-term goal of creating you know, better standards of housing. So generally, I mean, the, the other question was kind of like, how far do you think, you know, you're personally driving a, a project and how far you think guidance is kind of supporting you really to kind of take us to these 2030 goals? Do you think you can really bring the client with you on a journey which is kind of over and above what guidance is currently telling us to do? We can't rely on government direction. And we know that, that we as architects have the privilege and also the responsibility to, to push government in the right direction. You know, we, I think many practitioners are part of the Letty Group, part of the UKGBC, part of um, members of the RIBA 2030 plan. And really, you know, the government's... Um, stance is very much pushed by the, the practitioners who know that this can't be ignored. And whilst it's great that there are some advancements, and the London plan has made some steps forward, uh, but standards out there such as Passive House you know, are seen as exemplary models that don't need to be adopted by a, a policy to show that they are the, the right approaches to how you, you should tackle housing. So we, we know that they, they're a mechanism policies are there as a mechanism. The, the, the better they can advance, the better you know, they, they highlight the, the severity of the issue. Um, but we're trying to work with industry to show that we can get to higher standards without the, the, the cost penalty that gets there. Um, but it's really about principles. And the sooner you have those discussions about principles, then the sooner you can start to think about more passive solutions that you know, without those, you're you know, you're going to struggle to ever meet these targets. So it's having those discussions at the very early outset that these are the right principles and, uh, you know, and us as practitioners showing that these need to be taken more seriously by, by the government and, and enforced by policy. Rob, you were, I mean, obviously you've not been building like 3,000 homes on any one particular plot, but, you know, clearly you've been working, you've had a long experience working in West Midlands with various local authorities I mean, how do you feel that, you know, you've been able to respond to the climate emergency and how far have you been able to kind of bring local authorities on that journey? I mean, you've done custom build, you've been working on um, eco-efficiency, you know, retrofit. How is that? Has that been 
Uh, relatively easy for you in your experience? No, it's been challenging. Um, over the course of my career now in the housing sector, which is sort of 20 plus years, uh, there's certainly been a huge shift in, uh, in response to that debate. Certainly when I started out in my career, it was our profession bringing this debate to the table and having to work very hard to keep that conversation going and to, and to make progress. But the, the great news, of course, is that uh, we're increasingly finding now it's it, that pressure and request to improve these matters is on the client side as well, because it's recognised as a, a critical part of, uh, of everybody's work. Uh, local authorities across the country here in the UK, of course, have in various ways declared climate emergency status um, and um, sought to use that as uh, a position and leverage to improve their work. I think one of the challenges that I'm currently seeing in the, in the UK public sector market is that at a local authority wide level, declaring a climate emergency and um, uh, setting ambitions uh, is quite difficult to deliver if their departments are under-resourced or don't have the technical in-house skills to do that. So one of the great challenges I think at the moment is there's a disconnect I think in local authority in the housing sector on the client side between their goals at a local authority level and um, their ability to fund and resource in-house uh, the staff required to, uh, to to commission the right work and to oversee it and shape it. Is that just a funding issue, do you think? Or is it kind of a, that they've got, they do have a roadmap in place which is otherwise kind of underfunded currently? Do you think that they, there's a will there? There is a will. There is absolutely a will there at, at the highest level. Um, but there is a sort of funding and resource gap, I think, for a lot of local authorities at an officer level. Um, where I think uh, many people in that sector are being asked sort of almost overnight to become specialists or experts in this debate and this topic. Um, and I'm increasingly seeing my role as uh, finding myself advising housing officers like this uh, in the sector on, on how they can improve their work. So for our profession, there's certainly a role there to share that knowledge and to help, uh, help carry that, uh, that public sector forward. Elliot, how have you kind of felt, I mean, you've been working at Right and Right, so obviously, I, I, I mean, t admittedly, I think, the, you know, it's probably far more specialist in its way that you're dealing, but you are dealing with an awful lot of, albeit historical buildings, but again, there's that whole idea of, like, retrofit and the need to kind of bring buildings up to scratch, really, from, yeah. from zero. So how do you, how do you, what, in your experience so far, what have you been feeling in terms of, how you know effectively like refurbishment and retrofit are being dealt with in so think, terms of meeting climate I think obviously challenges. that is part of our our brief is coming to historic sites and working within them what I find is quite interesting about what's already been said is we're coming from a kind of housing typology where there is a local authority who's the client now in in practice at right and right we deal with a whole host of different types of clients and um, we deal with a lot of college work at Oxford Cambridge colleges um, we also deal with private clients and larger institutions. And they have each have their own kind of agenda, whether it be a roadmap, whether they're completely conscious of these things. Um, and I think what we're kind of identifying is that the architects are, in a way, working. we're working in a silo. We are generally, I think, a decent profession at having this consciousness of wanting to achieve these targets. But it's also the client's job to learn about these as well. And we a lot of our clients might be librarians for their profession and then for the project that we come and, and help them with the design and delivery, they become clients and they're learning that role as well. And so, like you, like you said um, earlier, we, it's, it's, our, it's our responsibility to inform them, um, but it's, it's kind of, it comes from them as well to drive it because ultimately they are giving us the money. They are, they are funding the project and... So they need to have that, that will. Now we do, like you said, we, we approach projects through kind of retrofit first. Um, we do a lot of work with historic sites where we're not coming to a kind of blank sheet, vacant site. There's, there's stuff there. Mm. And that's definitely part of our kind of, you know, sustainability criteria. It is, you know, the, the greenest building is the one that's already there. Um, and so you're kind of starting off like that. But you, you are having to inform the client as you take them along this this project, I think, um, in in kind of similar ways that we're discussing, but also, you know, there are different kinds of clients. Rosie, how have you, you know, obviously you've got your master's in sustainability. We were talking earlier about the kind of, you know, the, the whole different lifestyle effectively that you had while you're over in Wales studying at, at CAT. Do you kind of worry about the fact that 
the world hasn't really kind of, I mean, obviously you're at the kind of the cold face of sustainable thinking effectively and how, you know, how involved and deeply embedded construction is in kind of meeting our climate challenge uh, objectives. Where do you kind of stand in terms of where you think we are at the moment, where the industry is at the moment in terms of... So my personal journey has been to study architecture at undergraduate level and then on to a master's um, degree level. And now I find myself in a position where I'm taking essentially a sidestep from the traditional route of um, uh, qualifying to become an architect. And that's partly because I was seeking... um, a role where I could see immediate positive impact um, on the society around me. And frankly, I couldn't find that through my work as an architectural assistant. Partly that's because of the timescale of of projects, through the complexity of projects, but also by personally facing that really challenging point that buildings do harm. And I think that's something that's a self-reflective sort of stance that we all need to take. Buildings do harm. The production of materials, the use of energy to to create them, the use and maintenance of them have the potential to do great harm. Now, they also have the potential to do, have great positive impact. And that's where sort of my involvement with ACAN, the Architects Climate Action Network, came about. And so I'm finding sort of new energy and new um, engagement with the industry in community with others. So ACAN started with um, basically a, a number of individuals who were all working in practices, all at different stages of their careers, who had simply grown frustrated with the state of the current profession. So they all came together asking the simple question of what can we do? There's only so much that practices can do on sort of an organisational scale, but as individuals, we need to know what can I do? So that's where sort of coming together, creating a network, sharing knowledge between ourselves, which then can easily be dispersed to a number of practices, organisations. We've got people working in the public sector, people working in the private sector, in uh, local authorities and in sort of traditional architecture practices, engineering, landscape. So we've been able to reach sort of a broad diversity within the construction industry, not purely architects. I remember being really struck, um, and it was about 10 years ago, it must have been at one of the, the, the Green Build conferences, as it was probably called then, that Sir David King, though, was the government's climate change advisor, was, was talking there. And he said what he wanted to do, and I've, I've never forgotten it, was just go down any street in the UK in a great big tanker, spraying foam at the front of front and backs of all the houses. And I, I just found it such a curious thing for someone who's kind of supposed to be taking a, a kind of a non-partisan stance about how they how we should, as a country, address climate change, for someone to say something that extreme. And it's a, a kind of thought in my head that it's never it's never left my head. Every time I think about him, I think about and when he talks, I think about that comment. And I kind of wonder where everybody really stands about whether enough is really being done right at this point in order to... Because if he say that 10 years ago, we're now 10 years further down the line, only eight years away, seven years away almost from, from, a, from a kind of a, a climate target. And I'm left personally wondering, are these little steps that we're doing really taking us where we need to be? Um, I think uh, that little story is really interesting uh, because it's sort of an analogy for, I think, one of the dangers that we might have with this profession in terms of assuming that there's a a technical solution to this. So his proposal to sort of squirt spray foam down the entire street is almost like an extreme technical solution to the problem. Uh, And I think what I'm interested in in talking about, particularly with with Rose's uh, uh, comments there about buildings doing harm, is how we must get past, I think, the questions of technical solutions to net zero or sort of formal innovation to net zero and talk about um, uh, use patterns and activity within a building and the demand for the building and how uh, that is an integral part to us improving uh, climate uh, uh, situation. So you acknowledge that some buildings don't do harm and I think uh, the buildings that don't do harm are surely the ones whose programme and activity and support that it provides for its inhabitants is, uh, is the one that has the greatest positive impact on climate change issues. And speaking to that, absolutely. I think some of the comments that have already come up today is about almost 
reflecting on the role of the architect and talking about sharing knowledge, engaging with clients in different way, facilitating conversations. And these are all things that I've actually learned through engagement with sort of an activist network where learning about campaign development and having um, open, honest discourse is the lessons that we need to be learning um, to exactly that, to, to address um, the climate emergency. And in that reflection on the role of the architect comes what are the limits, what are the parameters of what a designer does. At the moment, it very much ends with uh, sort of stage seven, close out, the design is done and it's up to the user to, as you say, program it. But one thing that we find on a really small scale in the work that I do with Matt and Fiona is, design, is having a long-term co-design process which then results in a long-term relationship. So we have built in that, that strong relationship and that open, honest conversation because the user has been involved the whole, the whole way not even just involved in sort of a lip service way, but they have been the drivers of the design. We're simply there to translate their ideas into a buildable um, sort of structure. And then that's led to really long-term relationships where we've gone back and done multiple projects with schools and um, particular community groups. So you do you think it's about a societal... I mean, I think part of the problem is how much are architects really to blame for this? Because sometimes architects kind of get it in the neck, really. Uh, but what you seem to be suggesting is probably more than even technical innovation in, in construction. You're talking really, on the wider level, it's soci absolute fundamental societal change. Like you can stick, um, you, you can create a very kind of energy, you know, fantastic energy efficient building. But if you put somebody in there who's just dealing or living their life in a profligate manner, flying wherever they want, not recycling, you know, eating meat seven times a day, you know, that kind of thing doesn't really, you know, as you say, what you're talking about is really structural changes where in a way you're then saying, well, then how much really is the architect to blame for any of this? We need to look at how society really manages how it lives, how it survives on the globe. I mean, Phil, I don't know if you're, I mean, obviously you're putting a comment in now, but. Yeah, I mean, just as an example, we, we designed a net zero school in the US but it took 12 months after occupation to get to net zero because whilst the systems were in place, the design was looking at every passive solution to allow it to be a net zero operational building. It took behavioral changes. It took understanding how, this, how to use the systems most efficiently, how to, to, to restructure the timings when certain classes were taught and, and to, to understand how to um, take advantage of all the the engineering that went into the building. And it did take 12 months to calibrate the building to be um, at the operational energy that we wanted to. And I think that that behavioral journey is part of that process. Often one of the first questions we have to any clients is to reassess what is a comfort level. And particularly in regions where there's an acceptance of a certain level of heat or a certain level of cool. Um, passive House and other measures have shown that we don't necessarily need to have those margins and even just fractional changes in what is expected to be um, a level of comfort can make a huge difference. And that, that behavioural change is part of that journey because in the end, you know, we as architects have to accept that we can't finish our services at the handover of the building. We need to bring, you know, bring the users um, to, to fully understand how to take full advantage of the hard work and engineering that's got into these... Uh, into these projects. But as you say, it is really about, you know, in some ways, it is also about how an architect specifies, that's very clear, you know, how they, you know, the kind of materials they use. So, Elliot, um, we're, so we're going back to the whole issue of kind of, you know, the specification of materials, really, and the, the responsibility of architects to do that um, sustainably. Um, you, you kind of split the judges with your entry because you were, you were proposing making a, a whole building out of concrete, which was shuttered by OSB and then basically revealed and then you were using the material to actually cast, um, I mean, to actually kind of reincorporate into the, into the voids you created in the building. Um, the split occurred at the point where you were using um, high embodied energy concrete. I just kind of wondered where you kind of saw the, the relevance of that. Do you think that concrete's fine as long as you kind of have a, 
loose fit approach to how buildings are kind of um, designed and therefore can change use over time? I think that's definitely in there somewhere. And a lot of the work that we do is, yes, it's retrofit, but also it's um, long life loose fit. And sometimes we're working in at Right and Right, we work with lots of clients who can look back on an incredible, incredibly long history. Um, colleges can look back you know, some, sometimes nearly a thousand years. And so they're looking forward that long. And if you're giving them a building um, in concrete, it's going to be a building that lasts. And so sometimes if you, if you take that kind of whole life of the building, you know, obviously much more difficult to calculate, you know, what Phil's saying about calculating a year's worth of use, you know, calculating a hundred years or whatever concrete might last, um, then that becomes more difficult. But I guess the other thing with concrete is that there are some very interesting research projects happening at the moment. And there is a, a kind of research unit at the University of Greenwich at the moment that is looking to capture the carbon that's produced during the cement making process and turn that into aggregate that then gets kind of captured within the, the concrete itself. And so it's a kind of closed cycle. Um, so I'd be reluctant, you know, I spent my student years doing a lot of casting and I think there's real poetic joy in it and that might be just a personal ambition. But I think as an architect, there wants to be that that kind of poetic joy and I'm always reluctant to kind of have a, you know, when I'm teaching to have a complete ban on concrete. Yes, there are other, you know, immediately more sustainable materials, but I think you can also go a long way with more traditionally unsustainable things. Rosie? Yeah, I just had a thought um Ari, the concrete debate ongoing, that I think the issue that's arisen with the overuse of concrete is exactly that, that it was very much adopted as a one-stop shop. So it became globally used at a, at a huge industrial scale. I think when we're looking for solutions or avenues to reach net zero um, within this country and potentially globally, we need to be open to the mindset of multiplicity because even if we're arguing for natural, sustainable materials, you can have issues with monoculture forests. So the argument is not that there's ever one single solution, but that actually the argument is, I believe, is more around um, diversifying the materials that we use. Um, and I think that's related to materials energy sources, diversifying um, renewable energies, but also avenues of, um, of heating, cooling, running our buildings, whether, and also around the nature and ecology behind it. So many projects say we've planted trees. What is the diversity of the nature and um, ecology that is going into your site and landscape? And I think that extends to so many other points as well around the people that are part of the production of spaces, the people involved in it. And really it's just that mindset of multiplicity that I would um, say is leading towards reaching net zero targets. Hmm. Oh, yeah. So I, would you say, Rosie, there's a, uh, a discussion to be had around the question of comparing uh, achieving the perfect net zero at handover versus accepting that a building whose program and function and reason for being over, say, the next 30 years um, uh, can accept uh, a material choice which offers longevity or the poetic quality that Ali's talking about because the program and the function and the reason for that building to be in place in the community over the next 30 years might offer infinitely greater benefits. So Absolutely. Than worrying about hitting an exact calculation on net zero at handover. I do think that there is a current addiction with immediacy and urgency, not only within our industry, but very much in politics, how everything changes so quickly, um, around mindsets around short-term thinking. So absolutely, I think longer-term thinking will be part of, our, of the way that we address, um, I think, a lot of issues. I think that there's immediate steps that need to happen so you can still strive for challenging embodied carbon of a project but absolutely there requires this long-term thinking and I think that that's also something that we need to be engaging with clients and funders about as well because from an economic point they may not see the payoff immediately but having that discussion about the time it takes 
to reach sort of financial um, gains from a more energy efficient building happens on a longer term. But when we're looking at kind of, you know, long life lease fit, that's, we're kind of looking at kind of new buildings going up. And we kind of, I mean, it's far less glamorous, really, for architects to get involved in the idea of what we do with our existing housing stock, for instance. But I mean, Rob, you've been working in Birmingham, and I think, you know, architects, you know, as you say, they want to be designers, they want to do great things, they want to, you know, whether that be, you know, it's not building towers anymore, I don't suppose that's really what people are, or architects are going into the, the profession to do now so much. I think it is, I think, People, you know, starting now are way more sustainably aware. But we still do have an enormous amount of existing, you know, the existing housing stock, for instance, which is, you know, energy profligate. Um, and nobody's, there have been no real government initiatives that have succeeded doing anything about that. How do you think we kind of address as architects doing that far less glamorous but no less important part of trying to bring the housing stock up to 2030 standards? Yeah, the retrofit market for our profession, um, uh, I think I fear is seen as unglamorous sometimes and there isn't enough discussion about it. Um, I'm happy to report that I'm increasingly seeing it being engaged with really positively within education establishments where I teach. We, we talk regularly about refurbishment and encourage students to engage with that topic and actually we find it a, a very positive response from, uh, from many students in that, that topic. I've worked in the retrofit sort of sector uh, on several occasions over the course of the last 15 or so years, but almost embarrassed to admit that many of those projects have been at each turn put forward as sort of um, pilot projects or test examples of how we might retrofit a stock, not just for me, but for other uh, members of the profession. And it has been incredibly challenging to find a solution that is deemed correct and uh, successful enough to roll out to any, to any volume. Uh, and I think that remains a real challenge. Um, and I am coming to the point where I wonder if greater levels of intervention at a state level around decarbonising the grid, fundamentally, actually might arrive sooner and be more impactful um, than the work involved in, in massive retrofit of existing fabric. I'd be interested to hear what, what other panel members think about that. Do you think we're in a position to be able to do implement something like that quickly? I mean, government, as you say, like governments tend to think on kind of five-year periods. So I think you need you know, back to Rosie's discussion about or point about kind of longevity and thinking. Everything seems very reactive. So do you think that a policy like that coming in would, would kind of, would it work? Would it serve the right? Uh, to, well, decarbonising the grid. Um, uh, well, I think it would um, uh, massively change people's um, uh, uh, cost of living challenges, certainly. What it wouldn't do is deal necessarily with uh, the just as important issues around comfort and air quality uh, as well. And that's a, we should acknowledge, is a critical part of the retrofit uh, discussion around uh, mould and condensation and damp as well. Oh, that's part of that. very key at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I think that might be another example of how uh, terms like net zero and focusing on that sort of uh, neat little sort of accounting process of kilowatts in uh, and energy out um, might risk overlooking some of the the, the much broader associated topics to do with healthy buildings and comfort and living uh, that might not be net zero initially, um, but we might want to in, make, make sure that damp and mould and condensation and air quality is, is, is held up as just as highly as, uh, as carbon reduction as well. And that's the question about sort of how buildings can do harm uh, and it's a much broader topic than just that net zero calculation. Rosie, I mean, one of the questions I'd kind of put to ask you was about saying with the Architects Climate Action Network promoting um, activism from architects in the sector, do you think that the aim is practically even realisable? And do you agree that direct action such as just stop oil and insulate Britain is justified given the current climate emergency? And has the current energy crisis played into your hands? I mean, we're take, picking up on the idea of decarbonising the grid. I mean, all of these kind of... I mean, I don't know about you and whether you're more conscious about using your gas boiler, but I can tell you that I am. And uh, it has really caused, you know, in a way that you was you probably not even think about it last year. But here we are in a situation where I don't think one person I know doesn't talk about heightened awareness about their energy use mm -hmm. on a really quite fundamental level and a personal one. Yeah, absolutely. And even on a personal scale, I've been involved in architecture 
for the last seven years involved in architectural activism for sort of the last two or three years. And even within that time, I can't say that I necessarily reflected on the immediate space that I lived in. That's only happened very recently in terms of engaging with the community and people around me, like consciously, specifically. But as you say, the recent energy crisis has forced me to do that as an individual, while it's also obviously become a societal issue um, and one within industry. And that's also because I come from a relative place of privilege where I have a housing situation that meant that I was able to be almost ignorant to my energy sources. Um, just one thing I wanted to say uh, in response um, to what you were saying about the nature of retrofit being unglamorous is that this is so familiar territory that this is almost exactly the same discussion that was had five years ago, um, at least while I was involved and probably long before I was involved, about how sustainability wasn't necessarily the glamorous term, that reaching sustainability goals would be a detriment to the aesthetics um, of architecture, that it's a challenge rather than an opportunity. And so I feel like in the same way that the industry has begun to make positive steps to reframing the narrative around environmental goals can also be done with the topic of retrofit, making it almost fashionable, making it glamorous. But I would also, with that, challenge the idea that, that we've got this obsession also with newness, um, that the idea is you're only an architect if you're building something new. Like, reframe that idea completely. Well, I was thinking on the train on the way down, actually, about this topic. And, and, and when, in the context of the RBA, I think that it seems to me that the two bits of this, the plan of work that actually might have the biggest impact is stage naught and stage, stage seven. Mm. That working out what stage naught is, the brief, and trying to determine whether or not it's the right course of action in the first place has such a huge impact on the, on the question you raised, Rosie, about buildings that do harm or don't do harm, and then how it actually performs and exists into the future. And it's not something I thought about before, but I think this, this, for me this conversation sort of raises that for me. And then actually the bit in the middle we traditionally see as being the design and the construction and technical work is, is what gets measured under the terms of net zero by 2030. But actually the bigger questions for me are about stage naught and stage seven. How do we raise those in importance in, within the profession? Well, I mean, is that a bit like the 15-minute city idea where you're talking actually not just about buildings, but yes. you're talking about ways of existing? Yeah. So, you know, how you turn Paris by 2030 into a city where you can bike or walk to work, where you've got um, workspaces which are effectively kind of dissipated across the city because already, there's already been the general realisation that actually post-COVID, nobody really needs to be working in a 40-storey tower, 40 tower block. You can work in kind of isolated, discrete units, which can be hot desking, which gives you, makes you 10 minutes away from your place of, you know, where you live and nearer your childcare. It's, it's actually a, a structural, what you're, you're then talking about there is in order to achieve it. It's, it's kind of conceptual levels of change, which are, you know, kind of step changes really in, in the order of how we think and how we exist. Yeah, strategic level yeah. Uh, intervention. And Phil, what you saying? Well, I was going to say, that's what the Japanese metabolists were saying back in the 1960s. You know, they had that same vision of, of how a city should function, that it shouldn't be centralised, the decentralising of, of, of the urban grain you know, these bigger visions, they, they've existed for generations and only now we're starting to pay attention. When you start to go back and see the kind of architectural messages they were trying to, to portray in that post-World War vision of a new city, we're only now... Well, that said, they pulled down Kisho Kurokawa's yeah. capsule tower and they're going to be replacing it with a far taller one, so, and you know... I, I had the privilege of working for Kisho Kurokawa before he passed away and, you know, that passion didn't go away, you know, in his, in his final years. And it, he was fighting to keep that building alive because... It was designed to be this permanent uh, core that could have its modules, 144 modules, replaced and, and cyclical and evolve in, in the, the natural course of how a building would um, a course evolve the way that nature would do. And you know, he, was, he was equally shocked that people misunderstood that and they tried to preserve or tear down this building. And the idea was it was meant to be a living, growing, breathing um, Part of a built fabric, and the idea that cities were not static, but cities were part of a, part of an evolving system, 
was was that thinking in the in, in the sixties? And and we should be paying attention to these these visions because it's going to take you know a vision of that kind of scale to shift the way that we think about how we you know go beyond twenty thirty, but, but think about how we want to be living in our cities in the future. How are you going to make a structural change well, to your life? I, th- I think yeah. that a vision of that scale is a collective vision. And it comes back to this idea that we were talking about. I don't think, you know, so often architects are thinking within their silos and you kind of go weeks without speaking to anyone who's not an architect. <laughs> and you kind of, you, there are so many just consultants that you work with in order to design and make a building. And they all need to be part of the discussion, as well as, like you're saying, stage zero and stage seven, that is the kind of more collaborative discussion with with the user and how the building is then occupied. And so it's this much larger group that can come together. And I guess then it kind of goes back to what what, um, you were saying, Carlos, about the... um, the uh, Just Stop Oil protesters and Insulate Britain, that this is this diverse set of people that come together and are behind this thing. I think that is, it is a collective, if we need a big vision, it can't come from just, you know, Kurokawa sitting in his architecture practice office, drawing a vision for one building in Tokyo, because... But it was a vision of a bigger, of a, of a, of a, of a, of a kind of an into an interlayered city, really. I mean, it, it's true; it was one building, but it was kind of start of a bigger manifesto. But it, in order for that to manifest, it needs a much larger group of people and discussion to be had. And I don't, I don't know where that, I don't know where that lies. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a much bigger, bigger thing that we need to come come to grips with. Well, do you think architects then are kind of? You know, because at the moment we've got that kind of like hierarchy where architects work for developers and the developer, let's just, let's just th- say housing because it's just such a kind of big discussion to have. Um, but, you know, housing is effectively kind of like privately, you know, for the most part, privately and developer-led. So if you're talking about the idea of kind of creating these bigger communities, are you suggesting then that the way of probably giving these you know, I'm suppose, I suppose at the moment, atomized communities more agency is if they were, for instance, living in places that they were, they were, they had some say in the in the construction of. I.e., let's say go to custom build. What happened if you change, change, you know, the frame really for how we build housing and kind of take it more to the idea of mass custom build, I suppose, rather than developer led, you know, volume house build, which is that's the way it is. It doesn't need to be that way. That's just the way it happens to be in the UK because that's the way that we seem to be the only way to deliver housing at the level we, you know, we require. But the, you know, the ultimate thing is, you know, the whole idea of there will never be enough housing if you leave it to private developers to do it because they don't want to create a glut of housing. They want to keep prices high and values up. So you'll never solve the housing problem asking a private developer to help you solve it. It's... it's are you saying there should be some kind of structural change, political change, really, in land ownership or, uh, well, or facilitating housing in different ways? Uh, to bring it back to the question of our role in the profession, what we might be saying is that it's important that we as a profession seek to align ourselves or make relationships with uh, the demand side rather than the supply, um, the community groups, the residents, the people who need the housing, um, and formulate stage zero from the demand side from the communities that you're describing, Rosie, as opposed to uh, beginning that discussion with the supply side, with the developer. Um, I mean, these are, these are easy things to say, but more diff- much more difficult things to actually deliver uh, for different scales of practice. Um, that, that sort of role might be much more uh, possible for me to craft as a very small practitioner. I, you know, we, we have traditionally been sort of six to eight uh, people in my office, but over the last few years, we've reduced in scale down to just myself and my fellow director. Uh, and it's possible for us working at that scale mm-hmm. to engage with and embed ourselves into those communities and have that conversation. It'll be much more challenging, I suspect, for Phil and SOM because of the scale and nature of the practice that you work with. So I think it's somehow we need to recognise that diversity in the profession and we'll have to take different routes to, to these topics and these conversations um, because, some, because some are more agile than others or have different relationships and networks to others. And, and I think, well, it seems to me we've sort of in this conversation, what I'm, what I'm enjoying is that we're picking apart both the idea that 2030 as a target is uh, is correct or too short term, and we're picking apart the idea of the profession as a single phrase, and we recognise that it's more should be a more pluralist uh, uh, understanding. What's the most sustainable 
housing project, I mean, just out of interest that SOM have worked on that you're aware of? You know, where is it, how far have you managed to go down the road of kind of thinking innovatively in terms of how you deliver or? We, we're working on a project where we're trying to convince the developer that they can get to Passive House at a larger scale without having to pay a penalty for doing so. And, and doing so because we're trying to design it from the outset with, with, with um, the fabric first principles and showing that that, that um, change of mindset you know, it can lead to buildings that are going to have greater longevity, that they're going to be more enjoyable buildings for the, for the individuals to, to live in, and, and, and set that as, as the benchmark. You know, we, we, we think Passive House as a, as, a, as a model is a great one because it does talk beyond the idea of, of just energy and just carbon. It does look at the important aspects of air tightness the important aspects of, um, of uh, you know, how you control ventilation and, and the, the comfort levels inside a house. And, and, and I completely agree. If you simply just look at the carbon side, um, you can miss the bigger picture. And I think that, that the, the scientific work that's gone into the ideas of Passive House are, you know, have, have come as a result of, of understanding what it means for a, a more holistic uh, sustainable building to, to to become, and so we think that that's the, the fact that we've managed to get a developer to be interested in in that kind of a, a application at a larger scale, and perhaps push the the idea that you can go beyond the small and single scale dwellings to, to look at passive houses. There's great examples all across the world where passive houses is 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 challenging the notion that it is a you know is a, a single dwelling or a, a small collection of dwellings, and and. These are great benchmarks because if it can be done in any one region, then suddenly they they, they can find a home in in all of these you know um, heating driven climates that we're working in, and you know that's exciting for us. I thought I think it's interesting you bring it back down to passive house because we're talking about this much larger idea and we're kind of saying that it's really difficult to quantify such large, um, such large things. And and passive house is a great example of a standard that has been set that there is lots of kind of scientific proof behind and speaking from right and right we have we're an office of 24 people and there are three certified passive house designers we don't do housing but we are keen to use those principles in other typologies of buildings and then there's the kind of NFIT standards for for retrofitting with similar principles and I think it probably does take these much more but passive house won't have been written by architects and I, I don't I don't know the the kind of the origins of it but it will have been a collective body and so that's what you, you need where was you Wolfgang know, Feist which institute is he at in Germany uh, the Passive House Institute in Darmstadt, yeah, in Germany. Darmstadt yeah, it, yeah. Was, it was designed by um, mechanical engineers and building yeah. physicists exactly and that's what you need you need those other people that can then set the standards for for architects to use and architects can be part of that discussion but it, these things do help us to design because they give us really clear outcomes that architects can work with, can quantify and can look to achieve. We've had that discussion um, within ACAN um, about sort of the need for quantifiable um, metrics as well. And especially in the work that I'm doing within ACAN, um, addressing diversity and solidarity, I've also met, had multiple discussions with people confused because they viewed those as being more qualitative issues and saying, I find it difficult to engage because in my profession, in the way that my mind works, I'm looking for those quantitative things. And sort of in that discussion, it arose that absolutely issues with equity, diversity, inclusion are also quantifiable issues. But it rose, it brought about that question of, how we are desperate for quantifiable means, something tangible almost, not that qualitative information isn't tangible, but um, yeah, the desire for numbers or metrics for us to align ourselves to. Yeah. I just find that a really interesting stance. I think that's often there's a need for quantifiable in order to fund it, because if you're putting quantifiable you know, numbers of you know, finance into something, then you want to assess that against a quantitative data that's mm -hmm. coming out, out of that. I think a lot of what's been raised in this discussion is about incentives as well. Um, so whether that's 
finance, economic incentives, whether it's ethical, think about what's the right thing, or legal, like is the government actually um, encouraging any changes to happen? And I, don't, I just find it very helpful to identify, okay, these are the um, potential means of incentivization, recognizing there are multiple, that not one singular one is going to be the answer, but addressing them sort of in unison. And they'll also have interconnections, so they're not going to be mutually exclusive. Yeah, just being able to identify, we're talking about it, but just being able to say, yes, these are the things. <laughs> Sorry, Phil, you were... No, I was just going to say, so here's an interesting stance. Um, in terms of trying to put a number against the intangible, which is, let's say, carbon, one of the, the most intangible things we can try to understand, we can try to visualise what a, you know, a tonne of carbon um, can look like and equate to. And the EU, in their emission trading systems, have put a value of a tonne of carbon of being 70... equivalent of $70, which is three times how much the US have assisted at about $30, which is three times how much China assisted at $9. <laughs> mm-hmm. So if the world can't even agree mm. how to put a number against a, you know, a ton of carbon, um, sorry, a kilogram of t- carbon, but to visualize what a ton might be, uh, you can see why you know, we're still going to be at fair stalemates of trying to get people to understand the severity of what, what carbon is. And again, the, the 1.5 targets you know, is in danger of looking like an intangible abstract number. All you have to do is understand what a shift in the severity of weather conditions that results in, that actually is not just an, not just an abstract target. There, is, there, are, there are consequences that will come from you know, breaking beyond that, that target and, and they'll get you know, incrementally worse. Um, so there's no cliff edge, but there's a certain um, reality of what it means to, to breach that threshold. I have to confess, I'm quite torn about this, this issue actually, because um uh, on the one hand, well, just in terms of past in- incentives and, and programs, you're absolutely right. Recent examples of the heat pump grant rollout were an absolute disaster, as I understand it. You know, there was mm, simply not, right. not enough installers to be able to meet the demand. Uh, the paperwork was was a complete failure, yeah. and, and I think it was just just money wasted and time lost. So you're right that the, the delivery of this support continues to be problematic and fail. And therefore, perhaps uh, the more annexed position of allowing or uh, in, uh, fostering people's own ability to, to respond to these matters is, is critical. But the reason I'm torn is because I also recently saw a uh, talk by Kim Stanley Robinson after he visited COP26, the, the science fiction author, uh, who re- re- recently wrote Ministry for the Future, really, uh, really interesting and influential book. Um, uh, and where he described the climate change problem as a state-sized problem, that it was such a global-scale problem that it had to be tackled at the scale of the state. Um, and it gave me a real pause for thought because I, I see where it's coming from. Uh, it, 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 is, it, it doesn't respect borders. It doesn't respect geopolitics. It is a global problem and has to be dealt with somehow, maybe at that state scale. So that's the conflict, I think, is how do we, how do we give people... Uh, how do we empower people to make those choices to be able to go out there themselves, but also it to be tackled from a, a state uh, scale as well? Can I speak to that? Um, there's a really wonderful example um, happening in Birmingham right now from led by Civic Square, and that's challenging exactly that. It's community-led retrofit, and it's really challenging that idea of individualistic answers to, like you quite rightly say, an international problem right now. How do you meet, in what way though? I mean, how, because you're talking about state intervention. Yeah. I was talking about the idea that, you know, personally putting money, putting the money in someone's hands in order to do it themselves is another way. And so, now you're saying there's so a, this... So this, with this example, it's a single street. So I'm not sure exactly how many homes are on this street, but the residents of this street are essentially the ones leading the project. Um, so... Civic Square is facilitating a number of workshops and discussions where they've been able to um, review their existing houses and find out what the energy use is of each of the households. And they're working together to build knowledge, um, find materials, all the things you need for retrofit. But they're doing it by sharing the resources, essentially people's time and energy across the street. So it's not a single household 
um, which is having to go through this like really challenging process of finding out how to do this, yeah. how to retrofit their own homes. It's being done on a community scale. But that also extends to the idea that not every single house needs a, essentially a new boiler, a new en a heating system fitted, that that can be done um, by making the street more energy efficient and understanding which houses in particular can benefit if you heat one house, what knock-on effect will that have to the neighbours? And having that sort of less individualistic approach and thinking that every single person's actions has a knock-on effect and using that to our advantage, sharing resources rather than that being um, a negative. A neighbourhood scale problem, certainly. The Civic Square stuff you mentioned is a really interesting scheme in, yeah. uh, in Birmingham. And um, sorry, just to um, share some resources as well, that yeah. so much of the work that they're doing in Civic Square was um, recorded as part of the retrofit retrofit reimagined festival that happened yeah. in Birmingham yeah. and all of those videos are available on YouTube yeah. plug so many organizations were there for this three-day event they're all recorded on YouTube all of their sort of information and knowledge is is there to be used as a really valuable resource so I'd encourage everyone and anyone did, to search did you visit the red shed building when you did you come to that event? yeah yeah I was there for one of the days for the bright bright red building no okay that's one of mine oh yeah okay <laughs> uh, and I, I mentioned it because is that another plug uh, well yeah, <laughs> yeah well, no I, I mentioned it because, I mentioned it because actually there's a potentially controversial discussion there uh, the Civic Square recently um, had a really good event on the, the grounds of one of my clients, Birmingham Settlement, uh, mm -hmm. who are a really great charity in Birmingham that do a broad range of work in different communities. And um, I've been helping them deliver some buildings uh, on a site in Birmingham recently. And uh, we have aspired to achieve net zero as close as we could. It has uh, renewable energy sources. It uses all natural materials to be built, etc. Um, but the building itself, uh, I don't think, is entirely net zero. And not only that, as a small-scale project with a very modest budget, we didn't actually have the money to spend a lot of time on consultant time to work out whether or not it was exactly net zero. We didn't do the embodied carbon calculation in the end because we didn't have the money to spend on it. Um, I'm pretty confident it does well. Um, but as a delivered finished project, it's delivering events like Civic Square. Mm -hmm. So whilst in the short term, it didn't necessarily on paper nail net zero to the exact kilowatt hour. I couldn't even tell you exactly to the figure because we haven't done the final calc. It is delivering mm. community events and activities and programs, which has a much broader impact, I hope, mm -hmm. on um, climate change issues. And you also raised something that I, that I had in my mind to mention before, is about resourcing as well within architectural practices. Um, and something I think, Phil, that you were saying earlier about that, um, the agency of the individual, like what can we each do? And absolutely, ACAN exists as a network of voluntary individuals, but ideally ACAN wouldn't exist because the work that we're doing is being done for free on our own time. And in a lot of practices, um, continued professional development happens in unpaid lunch hours, essentially. And that's problematic for the industry because if we're saying this is the knowledge that you need to be learning to be at the forefront but you're not going to be paid for it then what sort of incentive is that for um sort of greater access and diversity of people to be able to engage in any of those things yeah i think it inevitably comes into the projects that we work on you know we do a lot of retrofitting but we're not retrofitting everything that's there on the site you know there is demolition becomes part of any project and we're kind of always aware of that but trying to trying to limit it as much as possible because it kind of goes along with the the kind of wider wider strategies of sustainability um i was just thinking about something else when we were talking about open source um learning and weirdly it kind of brings it back to this idea of we're all talking around the this competition in that we're talking a lot about collaboration is the answer. And for me, I think there's far too much, not competitions, but there is too too much competitiveness among architects. It's a profession that is born out of competitive people. The way that we win work is through competition. Um, there are, you know, really nice instances of competition like this, which are more about ideas. But the reason why architects are keeping themselves to themselves and their ideas to themselves 
is because there is this fear that someone else will steal that idea and then make the headline and win the award that's up against the kind of original. And and I think there's a inherent possible problem problem there with with that. Um, doesn't doesn't really answer that question, but it was a different train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> Just sorry, in direct response to that, I've absolutely been part of conversations where I so I used to work with Archetype, another really oh yeah, wonderful, yeah, yeah. Um, practice who are doing sustainable projects, and um, well, they did the first passive house comprehensive school, didn't they, down yes. in South London? Yeah, yeah, they've also done a really beautiful project for the University of East Anglia, which is covered in thatch yeah, yeah. and using local um, craftspeople. Yeah, the for enterprise centre. And it? I've been part of a discussion where some. Someone was saying, oh, look, but Archetype did it in thatch, so now it's done and no one can do that because they'll be, they'll be sort of um, challenged saying, now you've copied Archetype. And we absolutely need to rethink that mindset that if someone's done a good project and someone then emulates that. Well, you don't, what, it's that you don't need to necessarily kind of reinvent the same kind of mm-hmm. project. Yeah, well, yes. That kind of goes slightly in the face of the architect's ego, but... Um, that's the heart, that's the problem at the heart of all of this, I guess. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Particularly musing around the idea that, uh, that that it was archetype that finally did thatch as a process. I think that's been going on for a little while. Um, so uh-huh, think, exactly, yeah, they're need, not even emulating archetype. They don't to worry too much about whether or not it was purely archetypes intellectual yeah. property, right? Um, uh, but yeah, a fantastic practice that have been uh, working in this field for a very long time. Um, just to come back to your point about competition, the one thing just to connect back to an earlier discussion about the passive house system. Um, uh, it's worth recognising, I think, one of the reasons that um, process and construction methodology has taken hold and become successful uh, uh, around the world is because of the openness of the people involved in that sector. Um, Early Passive House conferences and ongoing discussions online, it's a very open forum in which detailing construction methodology and material choices were all shared very openly and in a very positive way. Uh, I certainly learnt a lot about construction uh, methodology improved my practice because of the openness and sharing attitude from the passive house community. So more of that is what we need in the sector for sure. I mean, I suppose we need to be kind of like bringing this discussion to a close. And I actually, after having listened to the whole discussions around the table, I kind of feel that the original question feels a bit crass because uh, what we were actually saying was, you know, given the lack of uh, government proactivity, the pressure should the profession should remain focused on the long-term goal of achieving net zero by 2030. I mean, the discussion has really kind of said, blow that one out of the water. It's not even a long-term goal. The long-term is actually a much bigger game, far beyond 2030, that involves kind of structural changes, really, not just to the profession, but really to society itself and how it kind of, how individuals, I mean, obviously individuals have to enact themselves in the world and kind of behave in a certain way, but it's also about you know, your locality, your district, group initiatives. It's so really, it's not just about the architect's problem. It's really a societal one, which involves kind of very structural changes in the way that we think. Given that, um, and given that we're closing, I was just wondering if we could start with Phil, go around to Rosie, Elliot, Rob, and then just to give kind of your insights really both to the conversation and what you've taken away from it. And... um, Perhaps the original question itself, and whether that was even the question to even be asking, I suppose, is... is... I still think we should see this as an emergency. It took decades for the agrarian society that we had to change into the industrial society that that emerged, and uh, it changed the the face of how we lived in in our cities. We're going to have to go from our current carbon-hungry society to a post-carbon society in a much shorter space of time. we can't do it without losing sight of the long-term cities and, and towns we want to be living in, but we can't wait either. So I think there is, there is a, a call to action that every you know, part of the, the, um, the built environment industry you know, has to recognize that we can't leave it for others to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's, a, there's a part of the solution that we can all solve. Um, we have to recognize that delaying it comes at a huge consequence. And even if it doesn't come as a consequence to us, someone on this planet is going to pay for that price. Um, so that immediacy is important. And it's within our grasp to, to do that. Um, but as you say, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that we want to build cities and communities that are going to thrive and flourish for generations. Rosie. 
Yes, in response to the original question, which said the profession should remain focused on the long-term goal of achieving net zero by 2030, I would even argue that remain isn't even a necessary word in this instance. We've done a very good job of talking about achieving net zero by 2030 um, and less of a good job on that focus being um, related into practice. And I think one thing that I've taken from this conversation is absolutely an awareness that I still don't have um, personal experience in relating that into practice. Um, but I hope that by continuing um, galvanization of the of the industry and and making sure that the people that are involved know that they have real power to enact positive change um, continues. Elliot? Well, I think this is a weird thing. It's a long-term emergency. And I think the only way that we can tackle it is by coming together, working collectively and being completely transparent. Um, we're at the... We're still at some kind of beginning um, and me and Rosie studied together and we are you know very aware that we're still learning and so so too is everyone and we just need to kind of keep keep learning. Well uh, I think the, the fundamental point for me is that um, this this isn't even a question this is simply a topic that everybody in the profession and uh, more broadly connected to simply has to engage with and uh, every project that you work on has to put this discussion front and centre um, uh, at stage zero that we talked about, uh, the driving force for the entire project. I'd like to thank you all very much indeed. It was a really, really stimulating conversation, my first podcast. Thank you very much for making it so easy for me and such a pleasure. Um, I'd like to thank Phil about it, Principal at SOM, Rosie Murphy, Diversity and Solidarity Coordinator at ACAN and Programme Manager at Matt and Fiona, Rob Annabel, architect at Access, Access Design Architects, and Elliot Nash of Right and Right. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for bringing your submissions into um, the retreat competition as well, which were fantastic. We loved it. Uh, congratulations on your uh, commendeds. And I'd like to thank West Fraser too, who sponsored this event and, uh, and the Sterling OSB competition, which I believe we will be running next year with another theme which I've yet to think about, but um, always, always a joy judging it. So thank you very much indeed, and thank you for your entries. Thank, thank you, you very much, uh, thank you. Phil and Rosie. Thank you. 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 <laughs>